Please listen carefully. Salutations, toppers, and welcome to episode 35 of the Turn of Phrases podcast. Thank you for lending me your ears for some more etymology. The topic for today is animals, so this episode should be wild. Okay, sorry, I tried too hard for that joke. Anyway, we're going to be looking at some sayings with animals in them, although today won't be the last time we visit this theme. I've already done a few episodes that centered on a singular animal, and between those and this episode, I still have barely scratched the surface of animal sayings. So, without further ado, let's claw our way into today's phrases, origins, history, and more. Today's first phrase is, an elephant never forgets. This figure of speech is used to imply that someone has an excellent memory. But why? Well, because elephants seem to have an excellent memory. These animals are the largest land mammals and live for up to 60 years. They exhibit a range of emotions and behaviors that humans would easily recognize. Elephants have been seen grieving over members of their herd that have died, they recognize themselves in reflections, and they're big into patterns. So big into patterns, in fact, that the paths they take and the places they visit are multi-generational. In fact, if an elephant is dying, its herd mates will do everything they can to help it get back to their own elephant graveyard. Proof that the Lion King is real. Although the real-life elephant graveyards aren't quite as creepy as the one Simba and Nala found themselves in. Okay, I think I'm getting off track, so let's bring this back around to where I was originally headed. The paths that elephants take. The reason this is important is that it lends itself to the origin of the saying. In British colonial India, around the turn of the 19th century, there was a house placed on a path well-traveled by elephants. Each year, as they tried to go through on the same path as they always had before, they were more than a little angry to find a house in their way. The result was a yearly battle between the elephants trying to go through the building and the villagers trying to get them to go around it. One year, the pachyderms had finally had enough, and they busted through the house, destroying it, killing several people, and getting their path back. Even though the villagers tried to teach the elephants a new path for years, they never forgot the original way they went. In 1954, a movie called The Elephant Walk came out, which was based on that story. The earliest known use in print, idiomatically, is from the Wagga Wagga Advertiser, a newspaper from Wagga Wagga in New South Wales, Australia. I really didn't need to say Wagga Wagga the second time there, or the third time just now, but it's really fun to say. Okay, moving on. A February edition from 1883 had the following in it, quote, And depend upon it such ill-used men like the Delhi elephant. Never forget the sting and seize the first available opportunity for bespattering the reporters with mud. End quote. Now that you've committed this origin to memory, let's look at why dogs are man's best friend. There are lots of different types of animals that people have as pets. Not counting freshwater fish, dogs and cats are the most popular pets, at least in America, and I'm sure that fact doesn't surprise you. However, what did surprise me is that according to the American Pet Products Association's 2017-2018 National Pet Owners Survey, Americans have more cats than dogs. There are 94.2 million cats living in 47.1 million households 
while there are only 89.7 million dogs in 60.2 million households. This tells us two things. One, pet owners on average have more cats than dogs, so cat ladies are winning this thing. And two, the saying that a dog is man's best friend would seem to be wrong according to the survey, at least if you go by the numbers alone. I suppose it's a good thing that the origin of the saying has nothing to do with how many dogs people have, but rather the relationship between dogs and humans. It's thought that humans and canines have been hanging out together for at least 15,000 years, so it's been a minute. If we go back to the 8th century BC, when Homer's The Odyssey came out, we find the first known written reference to the idea behind this phrase. After 20 years of doing stuff, Odysseus returns home, and the only one to recognize him is his dog, Argos. Now, even though it's been a long time since people and pooches began palling around, the popularity of having a dog for a pet began increasing in the 18th century, grew even more in the 19th, and then exploded in the 20th. Maybe this timeline has to do with the first known use in print as we use it today, when the Prussian king Frederick stated in print in 1789 that, quote, dog is man's best friend, end quote. I can't say for sure that was the trigger for the increased popularity, but the timing fits. Now, even though this next reference I'm going to tell you about isn't the first use verbally or in print, it's considered by many to be the most famous usage. So, the usage itself was in a eulogy of sorts, and to keep this from being a downer, I'll just say that a man named Charles Burden sued his neighbor for $100 because the neighbor had lied about how Burden's dog, Old Drum, had left the world. The case got pretty big because it made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and Old Drum has a statue in front of the Johnson County Courthouse in Warrensburg, Missouri. Burden's attorney, George Vest, delivered a moving closing statement, which he called the eulogy of the dog. It's a little long, so I'll post it in the show notes for you to read yourself if you'd like. With that, let's move on to the next phrase for today, crying crocodile tears. If someone is crying crocodile tears, it means they're insincere, most typically used when someone is thought to be faking sadness or sorrow. This one came about because in old-timey times, people thought crocodiles wept while eating. Even though crocodiles do produce tears, it's for eye lubrication, not showing sadness. They eat to live, and they don't feel sorry for doing so, so they don't cry over spilt milk, or any other food for that matter. Some people think this idea goes back to at least the year 1230, but it definitely was around by at least 1400, because that's when it shows up in print. It was in The Voyage and Travail of Sir John Mondville, a work with a mysterious authorship. The writer claims to be Sir John Mondville himself, a knight from England. However, it's strongly believed that Sir John was just a farce, and the book was actually written by one of a handful of people. Whoever wrote it, they included a description of crying crocs. I'm going to read the modern translation instead of butchering the Old English version. It said, quote, In that country there are many crocodiles. These serpents slay men, and then, weeping, eat them. End quote. This one was pretty straightforward, so that's all the information I have for it. Now, let's bell the cat. Belling the cat is an expression used to say that people who make suggestions should be willing to go through with them, not just delegate the duties to get it done. It can also be used to describe a difficult task. It gets its origin from the famous fable writer Aesop. Or does it? 
Aesop most definitely has a fable in his collection about belling a cat, and his fame is likely the reason people think he coined the phrase. However, there is some debate as to if he created the fable or simply copied it down for his collection. Although I found more people saying he didn't write it than people who think he did, I couldn't find anything 100% definitive either way. Sorry, toppers, but I'm far from the world's best researcher, and as I've said before, old-timey records aren't always complete, so I can only work with what I can find. Whoever wrote it down first, the story is about mice deciding they should hang a bell around a cat's neck so they can hear him coming. They all think it's a marvelous idea until they realize it means one of them will have to go up to the cat to actually hang the bell on him. No one volunteers, and the moral of the story is that having a desired outcome with no plan means you'll likely never get the outcome you want. Since this saying is one that has its first appearance in print as its origin, I think we can move on to today's metaphorical moment. It's just a metaphor, dude. It's a metaphor. Curious metaphor. A metaphor. Today's metaphor is camel's nose, which is used to describe a situation where allowing something small to happen will lead to something more that isn't good. The full version of the saying is the camel's nose is too far under the tent, and this is another saying with its origin in a fable. It comes from the idea that if a camel is allowed to stick his nose in a tent, before long he'll be all the way in the tent. It seems to have appeared in 1858 and tells the plight of an Arab miller whose single act of kindness towards a camel leads to him sleeping outside in the cold. I had never heard this fable before I started putting this episode together, so I'm going to tell it to you now, in case you haven't heard it either. One cold night, as an Arab sat in his tent, a camel thrust the flap of the tent aside and looked in. I pray thee, master, he said, let me put my head within the tent, for it's cold without. By all means, and welcome, said the Arab, and the camel stretched his head into the tent. If I might but warm my neck also, he said presently. Put your neck inside, said the Arab. Soon the camel, who had been turning his head from side to side, said again, It will take but little more room if I put my forelegs within the tent. It's difficult standing without. You may also put your forelegs within, said the Arab, moving a little to make room, for the tent was very small. May I not stand wholly within, said the camel finally. I keep the tent open by standing as I do. Yes, yes, said the Arab, I will have pity on you as well as on myself. Come wholly inside. So the camel came forward and crowded into the tent, but the tent was too small for both. I think, said the camel, that there is not enough room for both of us here. It will be best for you to stand outside, as you are the smaller. There will then be room enough for me. There was a scuffle, and the much stronger and bigger camel pushed his master out of the tent. Now the camel slept comfortably in the warm tent while his master shivered outside in the freezing cold. You know, this fable makes me think of the books, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie and If You Give a Moose a Muffin. The mouse and the moose never caused the kid to have to sleep outside in the cold, but it seems to be a similar tale. Anyway, this fable spread across the world, and by the turn of the 19th century, it was a popular metaphor for people to use. I don't really have anything else to share about this one, so let's go to the book for today's familiar quotation. All right, toppers, I've got the book here open to a section of quotes from Napoleon Bonaparte, and this is something he said to one of his aides in 1803. 
Go, sir, gallop. And don't forget that the world was made in six days. You can ask me for anything you like, except time. All right, Napoleon, I don't really have a response to that. But thank you for today's familiar quotation. All right, toppers, that's it for episode 35. Thank you for joining me again today to turn some phrases. As I always do, I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you learned something along the way. You can connect with me and fellow language lovers on Twitter and Facebook. Just look up turn of phrases on either site, or go to my website for links and more information. If you want to send me a message or topic suggestions, you can email me at brisky at turnofphrases.com or there's a contact form on the website. You'll also find details about the music I use in the show on the website. If you had a good time listening today, please consider subscribing to the show or leaving a rating and review. Also, if you know someone who'd enjoy the show, please tell them about it to help spread the word. Thanks again for listening to the Turn of Phrases podcast, researched, written, hosted, and produced by me, Brisky. Until next time, toppers, let me leave you with this adorable animal fact. Sea otters hold hands while they're sleeping, so they don't drift apart. If you want more animal facts, check out the Varmints podcast. You'll hear their promo play after Let Me Rephrase. Enjoy, and toodaloo. And now... This is... Let me rephrase. Well, because elephants seem to have an ele... <laughs> they also exhibit a range of emotions... No. And they exhibit a range of emotions and behaviors similar to what humans do. No, I don't like that. They also can... No, no. And they exhibit a range of humans and emo... Of humans. <laughs> they don't exhibit a range of humans, you dork. Each year, as they tried to go through the same pat... No, no, let's start this over. One year, the pachyderms had... Fu Pachyderm? <laughs> that doesn't sound right. I mean, I know it's kind of right, but there was a lot of E in there. A February edition from night... No. And depend on it... No. Yeah, that was right. Okay. And depend upon it such ill-used men like the Delhi elephant. Delhi. Yeah, that's Delhi. 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 Here I go again. It's thought that humans and canines... <laughs> My notes say candies. I typed that wrong. Oh, well. And Old Drum has a statue in front of the Counsen. Counsen? Now, even though crocodiles do produce tears, it's for eye lubrication, not. What the heck was I trying to write here? Not searching sadness. Oh, 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 showing, showing sadness. Okay. It was in the voyage and travail of Sir John Mandeville. Uh. Okay, this name will not beat me. Hey, my name's Paul, and I'm not an animal expert. I'm Donna, and I'm not an animal expert either. And together we do a podcast about animals called Varmints. Every week we pick an animal, do a bunch of research on it, and bring you some interesting facts about that animal. But we don't stop there. We talk about that animal in movies, TV, and other pop culture. And we talk about whether or not that animal would make a tasty dish, and how intelligent we think it is on the scale of 1 to 10. It's exactly like one of those fancy PBS nature documentaries. Except with more poo jokes. 
New episodes go live every Thursday wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or you can visit us at blazingcariboustudios.com. <laughs> Varmints! Varmints! <laughs> <laughs>